Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again, and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, the podcast dedicated to learning as much as we can about life, the universe, and everything, and uh, astronomy in general. And joining me, as always, is astronomer Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hey, how are you doing, Andrew? I am well. How are you? <laughs> I'm uh, rejoicing in the news that you and I will be talking about very soon. Oh, <laughs> yes. Story. It's Big a huge story. story. And, and I'm guessing most of our audience has already picked up on this through regular news channels. But it is very, very exciting. We, of course, we're talking about the discovery of liquid water uh, on Mars or under the surface, to be more uh, precise. Uh, we're also going to look at the missing moon balloon, and it's not what you think. And we've got a really fascinating question about why satellites fall back to Earth uh, or get burned up in the atmosphere. Um, we'll explain that. We've been over that ground a couple of times before, but it's very interesting stuff and well worth revisiting. But Fred, this uh, news of Mars has uh, just got the, the whole world, the astronomical world, chattering. And even mainstream media has sort of gone, oh, hello, there must be life. Um, so um, yes, that's right. <laughs> what, what's happened here? What have they found? So this is work uh, that has been published by uh, Italian scientists, in fact, who've used an instrument called MARSIS, or MARSIS, depending on how you pronounce it, which is an acronym, of course, for the Mars Advanced Radar for Subsurface and Ionosphere Sounding. Good. MARSIS sounds a lot better. It does. And it's on the Mars Express spacecraft, which is a European spacecraft. So basically, it's a radar instrument that looks down at the planet's surface. It has provided the most detailed maps of uh, uh, of Mars's surface because it gives very accurate measurements of the height of the landscape uh, that it flies over. But what has been done now is that um, the particular scientists who have done this work have looked very closely at the southern polar ice cap of Mars. Mars is like the Earth. It's got polar ice caps. They're a mixture of carbon dioxide ice and water ice, ours are purely water ice, of course, were too warm for carbon dioxide ice to, to form. Uh, but um, those ice caps are of great interest. So uh, what the uh, scientists have done is looked in great detail at the radar reflections that have come back from this region of Mars over many passes by the satellite, because the satellite you know, goes over this region um, periodically and lets you make your measurements. And what they've found... Uh, and it's taken them a few years to actually analyze these data because the observations were taken between 2012 and 2015. What they found is a really bright radar reflection, basically from the bottom of the ice layer. So they get a radar reflection from the ice layer and a radar reflection from the rock at the bottom, mm. which is a kilometer and a half below the top of the layer of ice. But there's a couple of places where they get this really bright reflection at the base of the 
uh, of the ice cap and it's it's brighter than the rock reflection and what that tells them because there's only one possibility for that is that there is a water interface there so there's liquid water uh, at the bottom of the ice now we don't know how thick it is because the uh, the radar measurements are not yet sufficiently fine resolution uh, to be able to determine you know the difference between the bottom of the water ice and sorry the bottom of the liquid water and the top mm. uh, but it, my guess is it's of the order of 100 meters thick something like that but it goes it extends for about 20 kilometers that's so big. that's it's a big a, lake it's a big big lake and it's underneath the ice of mars and um, in many ways it's not a surprise in fact it was sort of predicted over 30 years ago that, the, that we would find these things uh, that was long before mars express or any similar spacecraft had visited mars um, and of course there is a precedent here on earth because lake vostok uh, in uh, antarctica is exactly like this it's under a rather deeper layer of ice i think it's about 4.8 kilometers thick the layer of ice in the antarctic ice sheet uh, this is only one and a half kilometers thick but the phenomenon is the same you've got a, 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 a basically a large body of liquid water underneath the ice mm. now people will be saying okay if there's water under the ice why isn't it frozen which is a, a yeah. pretty you know uh, it's, a, it's an obvious question but there, there's got to be a reason there is indeed. Uh, well, there has to be, yeah. Yeah, well, that does. Uh... So, <laughs> um, so um, you're quite right. The temperature at the bottom of this ice cap, where the ice sits on the rock, is estimated to be, wait for it, minus 68 degrees Celsius. Ooh. Now, you and I know that that's way, way below the freezing point of water. I've, uh, measured, I've measured my wife's body temperature at that when she's in a really bad mood. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Um, in fact, I'll leave that one completely alone. <laughs> I thought you would. But, so you've got to look at what uh, what is actually causing the, the depressed uh, freezing point. And there are two things. One is the pressure of the ice above it. We know that when, you know, when a, a, a layer of ice above, um, above a, a, a surface like the, the bedrock, mm. that actually the pressure of the ice itself causes a, a, a depression or a lowering of the freezing point of water. You can do uh, that experiment at home with an ice cube, can't you? You can just put it, an yeah. ice cube down, put some pressure on it, and it starts to liquefy. It starts melting. Exactly. Yeah. That's for exactly that reason. That's right. Um, and it is probably that mechanism that helps to keep the Antarctic, uh, you know, the, the terrestrial, the things on Earth, uh, the, the lakes on Earth, uh, liquid. Mm. Because there, there's 4.8 kilometers of ice which weighs a lot. Yeah. Uh, every cubic meter weighs a ton. So it's, um, you know, it's pretty, pretty uh, hefty pressure that's on top of it. And that um, is certainly helping to keep that water liquid. However, on Mars, you've only got a kilometer and a half. You've only got one third of the gravity. So you don't have the same pressure. So there must be something else keeping it liquid. <clears throat> and we believe that is due to the presence of dissolved salts in the water, mm. in particular sodium, magnesium, calcium, all of which have been found on the surface of Mars and in fact have already been uh, cited as being a kind of natural antifreeze that in some circumstances allows you to see liquid water on the surface of Mars. Only small droplets, but it has been observed there because of this natural antifreeze. that They can reduce the melting point of water down to minus 74 Celsius. 
Wow. So if you've got these salts in that water, then the freezing point is lower than the temperature, the ambient temperature being minus 68. Uh, so that is, you know, a pretty cogent explanation for, for why this is still liquid. Mm. Now, the $64,000 question is, uh, could this body of water harbour life? Now, from what I've read, uh, for life to exist, you need water, you need yep. nutrients, and you need energy. And on Earth, we have those things, and voila, we have life. Uh, Mars is a little bit of a different story, but could there be life there? Is there a sniffle of a chance? I think uh, there is a sniffle of a chance, but um, to be honest, and I don't want to sound like a killjoy here. No, <laughs> miserable please do. We've got to be miserable honest. Friend. We've got to be honest and upfront. Honest and integrity yeah. is required. There, there is a, you know, there's a, a factor that might argue against that, and that is exactly what we've just been talking about. This extreme salinity mm. of the of the water is basically brine. It's really strong brine, and some astrobiologists have speculated. Uh, that the concentrations of these mineral salts are such that they would not allow any microbial organisms to survive. Uh, they wouldn't be, you know, microbes wouldn't be tolerant of it. Now, we simply don't know the answer to that. But we know that on Earth, microbes uh, exist in all kinds of different uh, conditions. Some, some like water above freezing, above boiling point, some yep. like water above low freezing point um, can microbes survive in in a really uh, heavily loaded uh, briny liquid we don't know the answer but it does kind of argue to some extent against uh, this being a hotbed of life uh, on the other hand of course there is brine in the oceans of the world and um, you and I have both noticed that they're quite full of life really yes absolutely true <laughs> and, and, and has that taken the attention away from some of the ice moons that are further out in our solar system because they were certainly seen as potential life candidates yeah that's right uh, look it look it doesn't it doesn't take attention away from them in fact in many ways you know it, it's it, it's a similar situation on those ice moons you've got a layer of ice much thicker than this one uh, you've got liquid water underneath it, but these are global oceans of liquid water. They're not mm. just, um, you know, not just uh, the the sort of uh, uh, twenty kilometres of of lake water that we're finding here on Mars. But yeah, there are definitely analogues between the two. And finally, uh, one of the other things that's been brought up in regard to this is that uh, when when we ultimately send people to Mars, we're going to need to be able to find a way to, you know survive and water yep. is essential is this potentially um a water source that they could use it, it is but there are probably easier ones to find because we know that you know in the no northern uh, certainly in the northern arctic of uh, of mars where the phoenix lander landed in 2020 2008 actually i think i was thinking it's 2012 but it wasn't it was before that um that lander uh, sampled the subsurface soil and only you know, a few millimetres below the surface, there is liquid water. Mm. Uh, I beg your pardon. There's frozen water. It's a permafrost of water ice. So that's a lot easier to get than uh, than stuff buried deep down underneath an ice cap. Yeah, I would imagine it's a lot easier to sort of get something that's frozen near the surface and melt it and purify it than it is to dig down a kilometre and a half. Exactly, mm. yeah. And the other thing is, well, you know, we might want to 
uh, send robotic drills down to, to have a look at what's in there. But then you've got all these ethical questions that you and I have spoken about before. Yep. Fact that terrestrial microbes, we know, are pretty hardy things. They take free rides on spacecraft all over the solar system. Uh, no matter how well they're sterilized, there are still a few remaining uh, living organisms on them. Do we want to pollute the potentially pristine environment uh, beneath the ice of Mars? We don't know that yet. It's a dilemma because we want to learn. but We do want to learn, that's right. In doing so, we could expose uh, a risk. We could create a risk. And, and yeah. yeah, where do you draw the line? But uh, it, it, it's... it's a fascinating discovery and one that obviously is going to be talked about for a long time and studied more and more and um you know what what else could we learn from it is is the big question i suppose um, absolutely we you know this is just the start because what will what will happen next i'm sure is that we'll uh, have a higher resolution radar systems there are spacecraft which are planned to to reach mars in 2020 um with orbiting components to them uh, high resolution might give us an idea how thick this water layer is. And in fact, you might be able to devise experiments that, that tell you a little bit about the contents of the water, although there's really nothing like going and dr drilling holes to find out what yeah. it's like. Stick a tap in it and turn it on yeah, and yeah, see what comes right. out. Mm. I think just, just on that subject, um, though, Andrew, you know, in many ways, the, the easier job to do to sample water underneath the ice is to go to Enceladus, the moon of Saturn, hmm. where you've got free samples being squirted out from the yes. south. Uh, and if you can fly a spacecraft with the right equipment on board, which Cassini didn't have, uh, to sample the possibilities of lipids and, you know, proteins and things of that sort, amino acids in that, in those um, jets of ice coming from Enceladus's south pole, that might tell you much more about the ocean underneath that ice without having to start drilling holes and things of that sort. And, of course, there's one more thing. If by <laughs> chance, if by chance they do find life in this brine on Mars, let's say we do go there and we do test it and we go, oh, there's life, uh, the DNA will be the interesting factor. Because yeah, if it's absolutely. the same as life on Earth, then we know that the planets have been talking to each other and perhaps making love. But um, they're, they're, you know, that... that answers a, a, a huge question uh, in, in life uh, yeah. on Earth and beyond. It, it's, it's, the question is, um, you know, is there one single origin of life in the solar system or were there multiple ones? And that's mm. a question we do not have the answer to. And it's a very interesting one. And all, we have, all we have to do is find life somewhere else and test it, the DNA. That's right. Exactly. That's all Simple. We have to do. Simple. But the bottom line is if there are, you know, if you do that and you find that you can... Um, put down life on Mars to a completely different origin from life on Earth, then the assumption must be that life is fairly common throughout the universe because uh, if it can do it twice in the solar system, yes. it will do it elsewhere. Yeah, it changes the whole game, doesn't it? That's right. It does, so yeah. we're not quite there yet, but we will soon be able to answer David Bowie's question, is there life on <laughs> Mars? Maybe. You're and more to come on this, I am sure. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. 
and there was just something about their their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Okay, Fred, next, the missing moon balloon. Now, people are going to go, oh, did we send a moon to uh, a balloon to the moon and it's floated away because of the low gravity and we'll never get it back? No, we didn't. And no, it's got nothing to do with sending something to the moon, has it, Fred? <laughs> uh, no, not really. It's um, it's an artwork, Andrew. <laughs> this is really, um, in some ways, the sublime to the ridiculous, but um, I'm a great uh, fan of artwork, so I'm not calling it ridiculous. I'm just saying it's a great shame that it's got lost in the post. And that's uh, what's it's, happened. It's as yeah. simple as that. <laughs> it's a seven-metre diameter, and for uh, listeners who don't do metres, it's 23 feet, in yes, diameter. they don't use uh, the pathetic system. That's, that's right. Uh, and it's it's a moon, so it's a balloon, basically, but it, it's covered with um, the uh, essentially a, a very accurate map of the moon, which is based on NASA uh, observations, probably, I would guess, from Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is the NASA spacecraft currently in orbit around the moon and mapping the surface very accurately. It's sent back pictures of all the features on the moon, including those six um, uh, lunar module bases that are still sitting there. Mm. Uh, so um, there is an artist who comes from Bristol in the United Kingdom. His name is Luke Jerram, and he has created this image of the moon, this uh, giant uh, sphere of detail of the lunar surface. And he's shown it at various different festivals and things of that sort. It's had a pretty good uh, outing in terms of uh, its, you know, its venues in uh, in the United Kingdom. But he's sent it off to a festival in Vienna, in Austria, and it's got lost in the post. <laughs> and I, I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> 
But how do you lose something that's 23 feet wide? Well, it's, you see, it probably packs down to something the size of a suitcase. And yeah, probably. Just a big parcel. Uh, and he's very upset, as I would be too, I think. Um, it, he's sort of a bit... There's a, a tweet from him that he's, you know, saying it's it's got lost. How is this possible? Uh, he's He's got a quote saying... Uh, it has huge implications for all these people who are looking forward to seeing this artwork and they won't be able to as it's in some warehouse somewhere. We haven't got a spare. <laughs> I hope TNT pull their finger out and try to find it. Well, it w- yeah. wouldn't have been easy to make and to, to do it as accurately as he has, and it, I, I believe it's done to scale. I think each centimetre uh, is equivalent five to five kilometers. kilometres or something, which is just extraordinary. So the detail must be amazing. Yeah, it looks fantastic. The pictures I've seen, it looks sensational. And, um, yeah, I, I think I'd be a bit upset as well. Of course, it is possible that by, by the time our podcast listeners listen to this, it may have been found and I might express the hope that it has been and that this news story disappears altogether. I think uh, I know what happened, Ray. Okay, right. Well, yes. the postal workers looked at that and said, they're sending this to the moon. They haven't got enough postage. <laughs> so they just put it. In the back cupboard until somebody comes up with the money. Somebody coughs it up. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. As easy as that. That's right. Ah, mm. oh, dear. Well, these things are sent to try us, and this is obviously one of those things that um, you know, it's good for astronomy that people are, are, are wanting to create these kinds of images, and and um, and when it appears at festivals and events, people would be captivated by it, and and I'm sure someone sort of says, well, that is where Apollo 11 landed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, that's the sea of tranquility and that's what happened. And, uh, you know, that, being able to see it on a, on a very large scale rather than a photo in a book uh, makes all the difference, I imagine. Uh, look, that's right. It's, you know, when, when this thing's in front of you in all its detail, I think it would be very, very imposing. Apparently, uh, Luke Jerome's also made a similar version of the Earth. Uh, oh, wow. Which will be worth seeing as well. Yeah. Well, I hope he does Mars because it's just geog- um, yeah. geographically incredible. Yes, it is. That's right. Mm. Absolutely. All right. Well, hopefully it'll turn up maybe at my place. I'd love for it to be redirected <laughs> accidentally to my house, but unlikely. You give it back, though, you know. But I can't wait to see where it surfaces. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Uh, Andrew Dunkley here and Fred Watson there. Space nuts. Finally, Fred, uh, we are going to, uh, strangely enough, answer an audience question. This one comes from uh, Judd Brown. Uh, it appears um, from the email that he's uh, sent to, uh, uh, us or the message via Facebook uh, that he has met you, Fred, and he still wants to talk to you. Anyway, uh, he's uh, in, enjoyed chatting to you at the Sydney Observatory at some stage. Uh, thanks for the question, Judd. Uh, I've never studied physics, but I've been told that the satellites we launch into orbit are in a nearly perpetual state of falling back to Earth, but they stay in orbit for some time because their velocity creates a balance between gravity pulling them down and centrifugal force pulling them outwards. Why do man-made satellites eventually fall back to Earth and yet moons and planets stay in orbit perpetually, or do they? Thanks for your knowledge and enthusiasm. Ah, oh. uh, <laughs> thank you, Judd. Um, the answer to the question is Fred? Uh, yes. <laughs> and thank you for joining us. We'll be back next <laughs> week. Uh, there's well, more to look, it than that. 
It is. It's a great question. Um, and what um, what Judd said is, is actually correct. It's one way of looking at it, that there's this balance. Um, I always prefer to think of it as the fact that uh, if you've got a, a spacecraft in orbit around the Earth, it, it has to, to stay in orbit. It has to have a very high horizontal velocity. In other words, a velocity parallel to the Earth's surface. Uh, and in fact, that velocity is... Uh, the basically the, uh, the the velocity for an object at you know 100 or 200 kilometers above the surface is about 7.8 kilometers per second. Mm. Uh, at that speed, and you can work this out. At that speed, the forward motion is such that as the object falls back towards the center of the Earth, the Earth's curvature is falling away at the same rate, and so the thing just keeps on going round. And it was there's actually a diagram in Newton's Principia, published in 1687, that shows exactly that. It shows a, a cannonball being fired from a mountaintop. And, you know, if you don't put enough gunpowder in, the thing just falls back to Earth. But if you put enough stuff in it, it will keep on going around the Earth because the Earth is falling away at the same rate as your uh, spacecraft is falling towards it. Now, the, uh, the, the, is, the downside of his theory is that uh, at ground level, there are other things that would influence that. Um, That's right, yes. There's <laughs> other stuff in the way. Trees, um, for example. But, but yeah, um, I know where he's coming from. Yeah. So, look, you, you need to get probably the lowest viable satellite orbit would be of order 100 kilometres above the Earth's surface. Now, at that height, you're above a very large percentage of the atmosphere, but you're not above all of it. And in fact, the drag of the atmosphere on your object traveling at 7.8 kilometers per second would very quickly slow it down. And uh, as it slows down, it basically wants to go into a lower orbit and then it slows down even more and then it goes into a still lower orbit. And of course, that's what we call re-entry. It winds yeah. up um, usually burning up in the, in the atmosphere because you're still traveling very, very quickly uh, and the friction with the atmosphere burns it up. Um, however, if you go uh, to a much greater height, and um, for example, 30, 36,000 kilometers. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just pulling that figure out of the air. That's the the distance from the Earth's surface that a satellite goes around the Earth once in 24 hours. And it, so it's where all the geostationary satellites are, the ones that we use to, to, to send signals around. In fact, for many of our podcast listeners, we're probably coming, uh, you and I are probably coming to them via a geostationary satellite as we speak. Indeed. <clears throat> Which makes you wonder why people don't do more serious things with these. Anyway, never mind. Never mind well, that. I mean, the, the most serious thing you can do with a GPS system is uh, plot the distance of a golf shot. I mean, <laughs> that's I can't see any other purpose. Yes, of course, of course. Well, we'll we won't go there either. But, <laughs> so so at, at 36,000 kilometres, there basically is no air left. The atmosphere has dwindled to zero. So there's nothing to slow down these spacecraft. So they stay there. And in fact, at that uh, orbital distance, there is a lot of stuff that's been up there for 40, 40 odd years. Uh, there are new rules and regulations now, Andrew, that say that if you're gonna put a spacecraft into a geostationary orbit, uh, 36,000 kilometers above the Earth, you have to, equip the spacecraft with the means to put it in what's called a graveyard orbit. And this is actually pushing it further out mm. uh, slightly. So it's never going to collide with any of the spacecraft um, that are in, actively in the geostationary ring around Earth. 
but that graveyard orbit is effectively permanent. So it does not, it's not going to come back to Earth. These are objects which will stay there uh, ad infinitum, basically, just like the planets. And that's because, uh, you know, with the planets, there there is no, they're not moving through an atmosphere. They are actually moving through the very outermost layers of the sun's atmosphere, but it's so rarefied that nothing slows them down. And so the planets stay in orbit perpetually, uh, mm. exactly as John says. Uh, so his question is right, is correct, but it's only the spacecraft in relatively low orbits out to say a thousand kilometers or something like that that will inevitably return back to earth and that's why there is a big problem with space junk because yes. there's all this stuff up there that unless you can nudge it into a lower orbit is going to stay put and be a hazard for future space exploration and pushing it further out probably isn't viable either because some of this stuff's really small and, yeah, it is. Had, and they've, they've been experimenting with um, harpoons to try and get rid of some of these old satellites and, and nets and all sorts yeah. of stuff. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it continues to be a problem. And there was a case recently, not so long ago, that you and I talked about where the International Space Station had to move because yes, of, um, of a potential collision. And that's that's the other thing. Uh, some of these uh, craft that are orbiting do have uh, power on board so that they can maintain that 7.8 uh, kilometres per, spec, uh, per second and, and don't have deteriorating orbits. So they can keep them up there longer than they would normally stay. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah that's right. Mm. Exactly. So the, so the space station itself is, is, an, it's exactly that um, scenario. It's big enough even though it's at a height of about 400 kilometers, it's big enough that it's got a fairly significant drag from the atmosphere. Uh, and about every six months, it gets a boost to put it into a higher orbit. You can see all that plotted, actually, on some mm. of the websites, the, the orbital maneuvers that they do. Now, the other thing Judd mentioned was the moon. Now, this is an interesting scenario because uh, it, it orbits Earth but it is never going to fall back down to Earth, but it is, in fact, moving away. That's right, it's going the other way. And that's because it's picking up energy from the Earth's rotation. If you give a satellite more energy, it goes into a higher orbit. Um, that's just the way these things work. Uh, but paradoxically, it, it slows down. It goes into a higher orbit, but slows down. So the moon is moving around the Earth at about one kilometer per second. But at the distance of the moon from the Earth, that's enough to keep, give you this balance between gravity and the, you know, the, the force that is pushing it outwards. So um, uh, the slowdown of the, uh, of the moon is due to it picking up, paradoxically picking up energy from Earth. And of course, the other aspect of that is that the Earth's rotation is slowing down, which is why we need leap seconds every few years. Yes, indeed. All right, Judd, I hope we uh, helped you out with, uh, with your question and covered every angle adequately. And thank you so much for sending it in. Uh, Fred, I, I've thought of a question, and I don't know whether to pose it now because I, I imagine it would take a while to answer or whether we could save it up till next week. But we've, we've talked many times about asteroids uh, striking the Earth and, of course, the uh, dinosaur asteroid uh, and, and what impact a, a direct hit would have on the planet. But what impact would there be if an asteroid hit the moon instead of the earth what would be the impact impact on our planet uh, it happens all the time actually i mean I, i'm talking about a big one yeah a bit well a big one is it, it was big ones that caused the the cratering on the moon and the mm. 
uh, and the, the those what we call lava basins, uh, which they date back to the early years of the solar system. So these days we're we're talking about things a kilometer or so in in diameter. If one of those hit the moon, it would be visible from Earth, if, if, assuming it's on the, the side of the moon uh, facing the Earth. But we know <clears throat> from seismometry left behind by the Apollo astronauts that things are hitting the moon all the time oh. because there's no atmosphere to burn them up. So, you know, even it gets a lot. little rocks, things of that sort, things the size of a boulder hit the moon. Sometimes we see flashes on the moon which come from events like that. They're called TLP or transient lunar phenomena. But it, I, I'm thinking like a uh, dinosaur. Yeah, asteroid. a dinosaur killer. That's 15 kilometres across. Uh, we will probably know about one of those <laughs> heading for the moon. Uh, we'd be able to watch it with great interest. Mm. <laughs> and what would happen? Uh, there'd be a big flash. It's not, look, it would cause dramatic size, seismic effects. But remember, the moon is uh, it's a quarter of the diameter of the Earth. It's over 3,000 kilometres in diameter. It's a big object. And something 15 kilometres is not going to knock it out of orbit. Or okay. anything like that. All right. Well, there you go. Didn't have to spend too much time on that one at all. My, my face was like the moon when I played football. It got hit all the time. <laughs> yeah. mm. All right. Uh, thank you, Fred. Always a pleasure. Good to talk to you too, Andrew. And we'll speak again soon. Uh, that's Fred Watson, astronomer, and he joins me every week on this podcast we like to call Space Nuts. We do welcome your feedback, whether it's uh, something you've just uh, seen or photographed and want to send us a, a picky, or if you have uh, questions, we'll try to get to them all. They've been flooding in lately, so it's very hard. But uh, we do really appreciate uh, your um, input into our program, and uh, we, we'll do our best for you. Until next week, thank you for listening to Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. <laughs>